Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming um, in this Friday evening at the LSC. Um, this talk called The Albanian Nun Who Was Not Considered European Enough, Why Did Mother Teresa Leave the Loretta Order, is uh, organized, is of course hosted by the LSC and organized by the LSC Albanian Society. It is the last event in the LSC Albanian Week, which has started uh, since Mon Monday with a movie showing, in a, in an Albanian movie, and then a party at the Students' Union uh, for Kosovo's Independence on Tuesday, um, and then two speeches <coughs> by the ambassadors of Kosovo and Albania, and now to top of the week, we have um, an academic, Dr. Kazim Alpion, who will speak to us on Mother Teresa. Um, Dr. Alpion was born in Albania and holds a BA from Cairo University and then a PhD from Tarham University and now he's a lecturer in sociology at the University of Birmingham. Um, his research, he is interested in sociology of the media, fame, religion, nationality and authorship and currently is researching the role of religion in postmodernity, the fluidity of national identity and fame capital in international context. Um, Dr. Alpion has published <coughs> a number of books, um, starting from the latest Encounters with Civilizations from Alexander the Great to Mother Teresa, If Only the Dead Could Listen, Mother Teresa, Saint or Celebrity, Foreigner Complex, and uh, Vouchers. And his um, work on Mother Teresa has been called as a single most important biography of, uh, of Mother Teresa in the English language. But uh, today, from what I understand, we are not uh, to hear uh, a biography of Mother Teresa, but rather um, Dr. Alpion will look at a particular moment in Mother Teresa's life, which is her, dep uh, her departure from the Loreto Order in 1948, and will analyze this mo moment in the light of um, several very well-known um, sociologists and theorists such as Marx, Freud, Durkheim, Jung, Horney, and Klein. Uh, from the perspective of sociology of religion and career, um, Dr. Alpion will <coughs> speak for up to 40 minutes, and then we'll, this will be followed by a question and answer period for another half an hour or, or, or 40 minutes. Dr. Alpion, the floor is yours. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Trim Chef. Good evening, everyone, and um, it's very kind of you to decide to spend a couple of precious hours on Friday. If you come to Birmingham on Friday, believe me, no one will be at university, so you are very brave, and I'm much obliged to you. I am uh, delighted uh, to, I was delighted to receive the invitation uh, from Mr. Komachi on behalf of the LSE EU. Uh, uh, student Union Albanian Society. I must uh, congratulate uh, the Union Society for the outstanding work they are doing. I'm delighted to hear that there are 24 Albanian students here. I'm not going to talk today only to the Albanian audience, so if you are not Albanian, uh, please don't feel that you are outsiders here. Uh, I would also like to thank each and every one of you for being here, and um, in particular, uh, His Excellency Mr. Mazi and Mrs. Mazi for uh, very graciously attending the talk. Um, 
I spoke with uh, Mr. Kovacci and Mr. Trimchev before the, we came here that today I would like to give a rather informal uh, uh, talk, presentation about Mother Teresa. Um, it's my habit that when I talk about Mother Teresa, and I know how precious Mother Teresa is for some people and how controversial uh, she is for others, I always say at the beginning of my presentation that it is not my intention to praise Mother Teresa or to rubbish her work. In uh, my research on Mother Teresa, as indeed as in any other um, academic study that I conduct over the years, although it's very difficult from the point of social sciences, I'll try to be as impartial as possible. Now, I know that in social sciences this is almost impossible, but I do together with my colleagues, we do our best. Um, it's very difficult, in all honesty, to condense the life of Mother Teresa uh, in 45 minutes. So if anyone has unrealistic expectations as of what I want to do, I teach media studies, I don't know how to use PowerPoint. It just shows something about me. Uh, if my students hear about this, I'm sure that they will rubbish me. Uh, <clears throat> I have chosen on purpose to talk today about um, some of the reasons why Mother Teresa decided to leave the Loretta Order uh, for various reasons, but one of the reasons is because of the controversial publication of Mother Teresa's letters in September 2000 and, um, was it 2007? Uh, yes. Um, I remember I received a phone call from... Uh, the London-based editor of Times of India, and uh, um, also from a Catholic network in Los Angeles, they wanted me to comment on the publication of Mother Teresa's book. Um, I was taken by surprise because at that time I knew absolutely nothing about the letters. I had received confidentially a couple of emails from uh, Mother Teresa's confessors, so I knew just a bit, but not about the letters, and I said to the um, editor of uh, Times of India, a very good friend of mine, I said, I'm afraid I'm not prepared to, to comment at this stage, because I want to at least Google the book, and I was shocked by what I saw, because in my view, and I have said it even uh, when I went to Rome on uh, a lecture that I gave there at a Catholic university, I think... In terms of social sciences and how seriously we take confidentiality, I think the book should have never been published. Now, don't get me wrong, as a social scientist, I think that's excellent news because it will give me more information, if you like, and more raw material to write another book on Mother Teresa, although I thought that I have finished with her. Um, it is a fascinating thing to go through the private letters of Mother Teresa. And if before I read the letters, I thought that Mother Teresa was reticent about why she didn't want to talk a lot about Albania because of reasons which I'm going to uh, clarify and mention in my talk. Once you read the private letters, then you are convinced that Mother Teresa was much more sophisticated and complicated a person that we usually make of her. Where does this complication consist of? Well, I belong to an old-fashioned group of Albanians. Um, when I went to Cairo in 1985, from atheist Albania, where we declared God persona non grata, it was very difficult for me to come to terms with the devotion that uh, Copts and Muslims in Egypt 
kind of devotion they showed, I mean, towards their God or their religion. Um, and it was at that time that I felt that there was nothing wrong with them. But I didn't want to accept that there was nothing, something wrong with me. And it was for this reason that I felt that there was something fundamentally wrong with my education. And that's why I decided to start reading, if you like, the Holy Scriptures. And I began with the Torah, with the New Testament, with the Gospel of Buddha, with the Holy Quran. And I was fascinated by the depth of this works. I wouldn't call them philosophical works because I don't want to insult anyone here. But I felt that it was impossible for me not to study I mean, this kind of literature in order to understand the Anglo-American literature I was studying in Cairo. I'm saying this because one day when I went to the Indian Cultural Center in downtown Cairo, I came across a couple of booklets about Mother Teresa. I'm talking about 1986. I sat down on the floor. I knew that there was an Albanian nun who was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace, but in all honesty, I didn't know a lot about her. And the brochures, I think they were prepared. I'm not sure whether they were, if you like, sponsored by the uh, Indian government or the Egyptian government, but for, you know, only superficially they did mention something about Madhuriza was of Macedonian origin, and there was absolutely nothing wrong, nothing mentioned there about uh, uh, her Albanian identity and uh, ethnicity. Yes, absolutely. Well, I kept on reading a bit about Mother Teresa, but in 2003, it so happened that I learned about the quarrel and bickering between the Albanians and the Macedonian Slavs about the ethnicity and origin of our Mother Teresa. And knowing what I knew at the time about Mother Teresa, I couldn't understand what the argument was about. And to discuss Mother Teresa in terms of nationality, patriotism, as we Albanians, or we from the Balkans understand it, was, in my view, absolute nonsense. And it was for this reason that in 2003, I decided to pay attention to Mother Teresa's relationship with her country and her people, whatever her country and people in this case are. Thank you. Can you hear me, by the way? Right. Thanks. I know. Age is a very, very difficult thing. No, no, I'm kidding. Well, anyway, so there you go. I started researching literature in terms of what exactly do they say about Mother Teresa, and to my surprise, and it was a very pleasant surprise, in the literature about Mother Teresa, there is absolutely nothing essential about the first 18 years she, she spent in Skopje. They say that Mother Teresa was born, say, in Skopje in uh, uh, 1910, and then at the age of 18, Mother Teresa left Skopje. She went to Ireland for a couple of weeks, and then from Ireland she was dispatched to Calcutta. Um, even the best biographies of Mother Teresa, they don't pay attention more than up to three pages about the first 18 years, and one to create the impression that Mother Teresa was born at 18, uh, which was a bit strange. But then when you read what Mother Teresa told biographers, hagiographers, people who admired her, and I would argue that she, had, she was quite influential in terms of what was published about her. 
Strangely enough, Mother Teresa was adamant that she didn't want anything to be written about her family. The beauty of this research is that, and the challenge at the same time, was because you had to position yourself between two camps. Those who admire Mother Teresa uncritically and wouldn't accept anything against her, and those who oppose Mother Teresa and they think that there is absolutely nothing positive about her. During my visit in Calcutta, when I saw, when I went to do, if you like, field work there, and I had the privilege to meet uh, the novices and sisters and brothers of Mother Teresa, what impressed me is that from the very beginning, once they understood where I stood in terms of the intentions of the research, they were surprisingly, I say surprising because the impression is that they wouldn't talk to foreigners, they were very discreet. But that kind of interview or interviews were conducted with a strict understanding, if you have a background in social sciences, that you would not report what they, what they will tell you in confidence, which I appreciate and I respect, and I have the moral and professional obligations that this is how it should be done. That's why I mentioned at the very beginning of the talk that I'm not uh, very happy that the letters of Mother Teresa were published because it's much the same way that you go to your GP, you say that you have a disease and the, dis and the doctor contacts the son and then voila, all your uh, medical records are made public. So in this sense, Mother Teresa was terribly let down by the Catholic Church or whoever made the decision to publish her letters. What else did I find about Mother Teresa? Um, in the first, uh, in the literature that she didn't want uh, to be made public. Mother Teresa visited Albania for the first time in 1989. And it was during that visit that uh, she sent flowers to the grave of Enver Hoxha. And if you ask Albanians why she did that, some of them are furious, some of them because in Albania you can't, if you like, that mouth Mother Teresa, they try to ignore it. My attitude towards this is that it takes a Mother Teresa to send flowers to the grave of allegedly a person who didn't allow her sister and um, mother to leave the country. But the point is that Mother Teresa, in my view, had three weakest links why she didn't want to talk about Albania. One of them is that Mother Teresa was the daughter of a local celebrity, Nicole Boyajiu. Her father was an outstanding uh, businessman, the only Catholic member of the city council. Um, he was a successful businessman. He was a polyglot. He was well-traveled. He had invested in building the first railway between Skopje and Pristina. He had invested in building the first theater. But he had a weak point, he was a patriot, and allegedly he was poisoned when Mother Teresa was nine years old by um, a group of Serb ultranationalists when he was in Belgrade talking about the national cause. That's where my proper research starts, because in my view, that painful moment when at the age of nine, Mother Teresa lost her father, I argue. In a country like Albania, when there isn't, if you like, in today's terms, a system of counseling, providing counseling to traumatized children, 
I say that that was a determining factor for Mother Teresa to take a different course in her life. And I found an incident in a couple of biographies, and very good biographers they are, Catherine Spink and Anne Seba, um, and Eileen Egan. Eileen Egan has passed away, but I've established contacts, at least with Anne Seba, which I think you, you know. Um, they do mention a priest that Mother Teresa or Agnes met at the age of nine when her father was dying and she was asked to go to the priest and bring the priest home because according to the Catholic tradition that he had to read the last rites to the dying father. However, he was not the local priest. He was an unidentified priest. And that priest has never been found. And the biographers have written to me that that incident was told to them by Mother Teresa's brother. I argue in the context of what the founders of sociology of religion have said that it is at that moment that the priest apparently was the first proper introduction to not what death is, but what the afterlife is. And my argument is that it was at the age of nine that Mother Teresa, as a result of this incident, as well as the kind of a sensitive child she was, started establishing, if you like, a link, an attachment with Jesus. And I would argue that she started replacing the biological father with a divine father. So in this context, religion, which is, if you like, for better or for worse, seen as playing a negative role in society and so on and so forth, or as Marx's quote, religion is the opium of the people, which is a misquote because that's not what Marx said, literally. I would say that it is in this context that religion played a good role. Now you may say, but, well, hello, the talk is about the Loretta Nun. You haven't said anything about the Loretta Order. Why isn't the speaker addressing the topic for which he has been invited to talk today? Well, the argument is that as a result of this kind of outstanding detachment that Mother Teresa developed with Jesus Christ at the age of nine, a, an attachment which developed through the age of adolescent years and puberty and uh, young age, we see gradually the movement of Mother Teresa's attachment to Jesus from a father figure to a husband figure. And as a result of this kind of attachment, Mother Teresa, through different stages of her schooling, decided to devote her life to Jesus. Now, if there is... Yes? Well, that's a very good point. No. No, that's a good point. Sorry, uh, can we just... Um, we'll have 40 minutes uh, for questions at the end, so... Um, the point that I make in my research about this, and it is a bit rather controversial, and that's why I had to read, if you like, what Jung, Horney, and Klein have to say about this, is because Mother Teresa felt, for whatever reasons, that she is the neglected child. Now, in the context of the attention that Freud pays to the 
um, sexual nature of children, especially in terms of the Oedipus complex and uh, Electra complex. There is absolutely nothing like that in the attachment of Mother Teresa to her father. However, she felt that it was her elder sister who was the um, preferred child, not even you know, in Albanian tradition, as I suppose in Indian tradition as well, the son is probably the most important, uh, my daughter will kill me for saying this, the son is the most important child. She felt that for whatever reason that she was not, if you like, uh, she hasn't attracted his attention. But the point is that it wasn't that she was neglected because he was an ideal father. He was a typical ideal father who dotes on the children. So there wasn't any kind of uh, uh, preferential treatment. But Mother Teresa wouldn't have been Mother Teresa if she wasn't an exceptionally sensitive child. So if the argument comes that Mother Teresa came from a deeply religious family, I'm afraid research shows that that's not true. Because if that's the case, then even her father would have been deeply religious, even her elder sister would have been deeply religious. However, when she for the first time announced that she wanted to become a nun, her brother said that she was stupid. How could you go to India and bury yourself alive? Why do you want to be a nun? And these are not the words, if you like, of someone who is uh, terribly committed to religion. So in a sense, it is more or less a typical, uh, I wouldn't say open-minded, but typically Albanian tradition, if you like, mentality, that you take religion as it comes, not necessarily being, if you like, um, fundamentally attached to a religion, be it Islam or, 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 or Christianity or any sect of Christianity. Mother Teresa went to India, however, not necessarily much along the line of uh, other European nuns that she met in, in, in Dublin and then in India. Where is the difference? <laughs> Well, first of all, to understand why Mother Teresa devoted herself to Jesus, you have to realize how many Albanian young women at that time were prepared to turn into nuns. And according to my research, in that area where Mother Teresa came from, absolutely none. And if there were attempts, if there were aspirations to become nuns, they would stay locally in Albania or the Balkans, but none of them to India. That's where her father is important. Because at the age of nine, and perhaps even earlier, Mother Teresa, who wanted to be a writer, who was a musician, who could write poetry and wanted to be a teacher, was firstly introduced with the literature written by missionaries, Croat and Slovene missionaries in India. So in a sense, she fell in love with India before she lost her father. That kind of exotic attitude that we Westerners and Europeans have was enforced a bit furthermore as a result of the traveling that Mother Teresa's father did. So in a sense, the kind of stories that he told her about the world and so on and so forth, of course, were magical because he was an outstanding personality. When Mother Teresa went to India, however, from 1929, January 1929, up until 1946, which is another period in Mother Teresa's life which has not been studied thoroughly. You could see that there were cracks in the kind of relationship that she wanted to build with the Loretta Order, an order which she loved, 
But it was not the kind of devotion or service that she was prepared, if you like, to sacrifice her life for. But the point is that Mother Teresa came from, at that time, a country which was, for the wrong reasons, seen as not necessarily being European because we were under the Turks for 500 years. So if you ask some of the Irish nuns, bless them, if they knew anything about Albania, they wouldn't have a clue. Now, there you have an Albanian nun from Skopje who took issue with the way how religion or Jesus was preached in India. Let's not forget that 1940s was an important period in the history of India. It was at that time when it was absolutely obvious that the British Empire was coming to an end in that part of the world, the British rule. But then the Catholics and the Christians in India, in spite of hundreds of years of presence there, they have failed to make an impact in India. And the reason why they have failed to make an impact in India is because when the missionaries, especially as from the beginning of the 15th century, went to India, they went to India in a country with an established culture, sophisticated culture. So superior Europeans, when they went there, they were not prepared, if you like, to feel, to face this kind of resistance. But Mother Teresa, different from the Irish nuns, or different from the nuns and monks of, uh, <coughs> sorry, brothers uh, of other Christian denominations, she wasn't there as a Westerner Christian missionary who was there because she wanted to serve her country. Now, I'm not saying that the missionaries, when they go to India, or all missionaries, if you like, are in a sense politicized. But Mother Teresa was different. However, no one can deny that Christianity and colonialism, they go hand in hand. So it is difficult to separate both of these entities. In Mother Teresa's case, she went to India not to serve the poor. Yes, she did serve the poor, but let's not forget that the, her main target was to serve Jesus. And that's a fundamental difference, which Mother Teresa was, had the integrity to, to emphasize time and again that she was not a social worker. She was really angry when her work, her charitable work, was seen, if you like, as an attempt to help the poor. I would argue that in 1946, when Mother Teresa apparently received the second call from God, the first one being in 1912, I think she realized what the Vatican would realize probably a decade or so later. And what did Mother Teresa realize? That Christianity in India would have its days numbered if it was preached and approached with old-fashioned tradition and colonial ways. In other words, she was not happy with the cloistered life that she and other nuns were living in the order. She wanted to leave the order because she had her own vision of how things could be. Now, whenever I talk about this aspect of Mother Teresa, uh, I would like to um, refer to a joke. The pessimist and an optimist were having a discussion, and the pessimist says, oh, things can't get any worse. 
And the optimist says, oh, yes, they can. Now, Mother Teresa was an optimist who was prepared to face reality rather than stay indoors. And that's what she did. She took the risk. But what kind of authority did Mother Teresa have? Where did she get the kind of moral, if you like, superiority or claim to say to you know, the young ladies uh, in India from different nationalities initially from India that you have to follow me because I have a message. Well, this is where perhaps we have the first problem with Mother Teresa's um, appeal. We have to address the issue of charisma. I can give you up to 20 names as to what exactly charisma is and whoever has been doing research in charisma studies, it's absolutely unable to say what exactly charisma is. It is that kind of authority, God-given talent, call it, or an it, that you have it because God knows how you have it. I'm not talking about present-day celebrities that you can be a celebrity once because you take part in a crap program. No, I'm talking about Charisma in the context of how Carlyle and Samuel Smiles understood it in the seminal works that they published in the mid-19th century, Carlyle with Hero and, Her and Hero Worship and Samuel Smiles with Self-Help. I'm talking about people who were prepared to sacrifice their lives and who didn't give a toss about whether they were famous or not. But Weber discusses charisma in terms of three levels of authority. And according to Weber, you can classify authority in terms of charismatic authority, traditional authority, and rational legal authority. That's where, as a social scientist, I have a bit of a problem as to where exactly to locate Mother Teresa's charisma. How do you convince young ladies in Calcutta, follow me because I want to establish an order? And establishing an order in 1948, when the Vatican did not have the resources and was encouraging followers that it's impossible because the orders are being a burden, to say that I want to establish an order and I'm going to add an extra vow, which means that not only I do not need money from the Vatican, I will self-finance because we will have the vow of poverty. So this leads us with the notion of where exactly did the charisma come from? According to Weber, especially in terms of the charismatic authority, which is a religious authority, you have a charisma if you are capable of performing miracles, which means if you can split the Red Sea, if you can walk on water, or if you can go to heaven and come back. And of course, those who have a background in religious studies, you know that I'm talking about Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. However, the danger with this kind of charismatic authority or religious charisma is that once you are not capable anymore to perform miracles, you don't have a following. So how could Mother Teresa continue to have a following? Time and again, Mother Teresa has been asked as to in what circumstances did she experience the two calls from God? Because the issue is you have to decide, did she have supernatural powers? Now, according to hagiographers, of course, Mother Teresa had supernatural powers because she can, you know, perform miracles. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not uh, very serious about the issue of saints. I mean, 
for me, a saint is as much you know, important as a lord is for the British establishment because it is a kind of <coughs> uh, appraisal distinguishing thing that uh, is given to a member of an entity, in this case, uh, the church. Did all the, the, the saints perform miracles? It's not my business. If the Catholics believe that they did, then let Catholics be happy with it. So I'm not in the business of discussing whether it is possible to perform miracles or not. Mother Teresa, and that's another sign of her integrity, always was keen to emphasize that she did never experience anything which was kind of visionary. In other words, the claim that uh, Hitchens says that she wanted to pretend as if she had a direct line with God, hello God, it's me, Mother Teresa, I would like this and that, that is absolutely nonsense because Mother Teresa herself did not accept it, yes. I know, but it's part of the religious discourse. So in a sense, I mean, everyone who is religious would say these things. Of course. Of course, absolutely. So, so, uh, so I must insist on this point. Um, the talk is being recorded and it will be available online as a podcast. So if you could please wait so then we can use the microphone during the Q&A period. <laughs> It's all right. I mean, Arub is a very good friend of mine, so no, we have fine, this kind of thing. Other Thank you. To of course. So, anyway, now I know that I have five minutes more. Um, the kind of original vision of Catholicism, or the way how she understood preaching in India at that seminal moment in the history of uh, uh, India, apparently did not make poor monasteries are very popular with the uh, nuns in the Loretta order. I have to emphasize that Madhuri loved the order. And if I'm not wrong, <coughs> excuse me, she did say that leaving the Loretta order in 1948 was as painful as the moment when she left her family. However, for the sake of what Madhuri went to Calcutta initially, she was prepared to make even this even bigger sacrifice. The point that I make whenever I talk about Mother Teresa and her, <coughs> her devotion to the Loretta Order is that Mother Teresa must be separated, distinguished by the celebrities that we manufacture daily, weekly, monthly in the West. If the media plays such a crucial role in artificially constructing, if you like, fabricating celebrities. You can't fabricate someone like Mother Teresa because Mother Teresa was Mother Teresa because she herself had a vision. What Mother Teresa, where she was unique, was that although she didn't have a degree in the media, she was a very educated nun, by the way, she understood even before the issue of communication was raised in the Second Vatican Council, almost 12 years earlier, that in the new media age, the best way to preach about Jesus is by using effectively the media. So in a sense, when I say that Mother Teresa was a media saint, what I'm saying is that it was impossible 
to have this kind of reputation, this kind of popularity, this kind of appeal in the West, unless my result wasn't, if you like, so clever, not in manipulating the media, but in using it effectively. And Bob Geldof, who, as you know, he wants to make poverty history, which is a very good idea. I hope he succeeds. He was very much impressed by the way Mother Teresa used the media and how she handled the American journalists. And according to Geldof, she was, she knew exactly what she wanted to ask. And even the most sophisticated PR experts and journalists, they felt that in the presence of Mother Teresa, they had to learn from her. And I'm afraid this is also part of the kind of charisma that Mother Teresa had. Was it natural? I don't know. Mother Teresa was a very sophisticated person. She was a very, very sensitive child. She was a very educated nun. And what's more important, although all critics of Mother Teresa would say that she never read anything, if you read the private writings of Mother Teresa, you would say that she was constantly asking for answers for the long spirit, for the long dark night of the soul, which in the case of Mother Teresa, strangely enough, went for some 47 years. In other words, any kind of myth about Mother Teresa, that Mother Teresa was an ignorant nun, Mother Teresa was simple-minded, Mother Teresa couldn't, if you like, express herself, in my view, on the basis of research, has to be reconsidered because Mother Teresa has to teach, can teach one or two things, even to the most sophisticated media experts. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Alpion. I think you've said some very controversial things, and it seems to me that two of the most important relationships to be explored further here as, um, are Mother Teresa's relationship to God and then the social context in which um, she grew up and, uh, together with her family. Um, as I said, please wait until uh, the mic comes to you so then we can have a proper recording. Um, we'll go to the question and answer period now. The gentleman here, please. Yes. I want to ask you a few clarifications about the Loreto teaching uh, that uh, is in every book, and even my cousin, who I don't speak with, Bharati Mukherjee, she uh, wrote that she was taught by her in Loreto uh, house. Yes. Uh, you probably don't know, but Loreto in Calcutta has, they uh, operate on a very strict class system. There is Loreto house at the very top, which Teresa was supposed to be associated with the teaching in. I find it very incredible. And there is Loreto Dharamtala, Loreto Sialda, and the other, all the other lower, lower Loretos, which sort of middle class or lower middle class people go to. So do you know whether she was allowed to teach at Loreto House, which, is, which was, as you probably know, all the royal families of Asia used to send children, uh, girls, to Loreto House in the 1930s and 40s, including the Burmese royal family, the Nepalese royal family, the, uh, all the Indian royal families. Do you know anything about that? Yes. Well, thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Arup Chatterjee is a very good friend of mine. He has written a fascinating book about Mother Teresa, The Final Verdict. Uh, not everyone agrees with uh, Dr. Chatterjee. I don't agree with Dr. Chatterjee, but we are still good friends. Um, I do tackle this issue in my book, um, and I 
had correspondence with the Loretta Order and with the archivist of the Loretta Order, and they very kindly and very openly um, answered all my questions. Now, according to them, there isn't a case of discrimination that she was sent, if you like, to St. Mary's House and so on and so forth, and uh, school and... Did she actually teach at Loretta House? Uh, no, she has no. never taught there. No. Harat Mukaji claims, like many other biographers, that she taught her, which is no. obviously untrue. No, no. The, the, the issue is, and I have read the article, I think you're referring to the article in, 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 Time. in Time magazine, yes. Um, if, if I remember it correctly, it's, it's, it's five years, I mean, since I've done, if you like, textual analysis on that, she doesn't say that monetaries are taught, but that she was... Is it taught us? Oh, well, I mean, if, if she has mentioned outside the, the, the article, but in the article she says that she and her fellow students were familiar with Mother Teresa because according to them, and what she has heard from the Irish nun, she was Albanian and then she didn't ha they didn't have, the students didn't have a clue as to what, uh, who, who an Albanian was or what an Albanian, where Albania is for that matter. Um, what she says, and that's where I do, if you like, the kind of uh, uh, discourse analysis of what, uh, um, the pr Professor Chatterjee says, although I have to admit that professor. in spite of... Um, well, she's, a, she's a professor, isn't she? Oh, you know, you know, Professor Mukherjee. Mukherjee, yes. Mm -hmm. um, she didn't reply to my mail because I really wanted to have, if you like, an in-depth discussion with her, but I respect her right not to, 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 to reply. My impression is that the nuns knew something about the tension between Mother Teresa and the Irish nuns. Yeah. Which means that by the time that uh, uh, Mukherjee was studying there, and I think it was in the 50s, by the, the 50s. time Mother Teresa had left the order, at least by two years. But the bad feeling was there. And now, I'm, I, I suppose you have read Mother Teresa's private writings. Um, and it is in the writings where Mother Teresa is very explicit about the tension, the kind of tension that she had um, as a result, if you like, of her tete-a-tete -tete and the kind of confession that she had with the... But, sorry, uh, yeah. but no, she didn't teach. At didn't she? But, you know, as you, as you probably know in the hagiographies, it's constantly stated that Mother Teresa taught in Bengali uh, uh, to the poor children to, appear for, to make her appear as a, as a very sort of giving person. She couldn't write Bengali. I mean, I, I would take issue with the fact that you're saying she was a very, very... Uh, highly wise and highly erudite person. Have you read the letters? Uh, no, but did she ever write Bengali in 50 years? She couldn't, um, well, she, she couldn't write is, it. No, I mean, the issue is, if you ask whether Maltriza no, whether knew Bengali, that's not the no, important no, she issue. Knew. She knew to speak. Right, she knew not to speak. Not with a very strong accent, but she but could never write a single word. Mother Teresa taught his history and geography there. Mother Teresa, if you like, was the head teacher. Mother Teresa, my understanding is that she was demoted as a head teacher as a result of... No, the but that's the head geographies. But I know. Do we, do, do you, are, you, are you telling me that slum children who cannot speak English are taught in Bengali by a person who cannot write Bengali? I mean, if, and perhaps could not read it. If I ask, if you like, this question to Mother Teresa, wherever she is now, she would say, well, I'm not, if you like, a linguist, and I didn't go to India yeah, for 50 years, if you, if you 50 years, if you 50 years... I know, but she, she spoke fluent... Uh, fluent not uh, quite Bengali. fluent, but anyway, she, she spoke. Well, what did she want, I mean, if you like, the written Bengali, if you want to go to Calcutta in the slums of Calcutta, the point is she didn't want to educate these children as we understand education. She wanted, if you like, to teach them basics. But history and geography. Well, I mean, we don't have to take very seriously what all hagiographers say. All of them say understand. that she taught geography. 
which is unbelievable. This is what I'm saying. I mean, I, would take, I wouldn't think that she was a very uh, wise and erudite person. I mean, she may be a special kind of person. I'll tell you what. If you read the biographies, the kind of analysis that she approaches, I think she deserves whatever. I'm not a Catholic and I'm not religious. I think if anyone in the 20th century deserves to be made, if you like, by the Vatican a doctor of divinity, in terms of the depth of letters and the analysis. Divinity uh, by the Vatican, that's fine. I do accept that. Let's agree to this. Another thing, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, just continue afterwards. Quick, quickly make a point, because it is an Albanian organization. In Calcutta, when I was growing up, as you know, that he was, she wasn't a big person. But anyway, everybody who knew about her, which wasn't a white knowledge, always talked about her as a, as a Yugoslavian. Yes. When she got the Nobel Prize, if you link the Calcutta Papers, at the time, she was called a Yugoslavian-born person. Right. Even after she died, 1997, the statesman, which was one of the, her greatest supporters, as you probably know, even after death, obituary, her obituary uh, described her as an Yugoslavian nun, Yugoslavian-born. So, so what's that, the question? That's something. No, I'm just saying that you know, this Macedonian-Albanian question uh, doesn't uh, uh, arise in India, which is unfortunate, because she always called herself Albanian very strongly, but it didn't, per it didn't permeate in India at all. Oh, yeah, but let's it not is, forget that Mother Teresa, as a public figure, she was also a diplomat in that sense. So well, she, no, was... she wanted to call herself Albanian, but they didn't, <coughs> for something they didn't buy. No. Okay, Ambassador Brecci, please. Dr. Halpion, thank you very much for the, for the talk. Uh, it's uh, interesting. The book is also very interesting. Uh, a few points which I noted as you were speaking. Uh, let me make first a comment about the politics of the semantics which this gentleman is using. Uh, for someone coming from a country which has always been part of the non-aligned movement, such as India, um, it is clear that anyone who lived in former Yugoslavia had a Yugoslav passport and travel across the world without visa because of the Titus policy and being part of the non-aligned movement. So including two million Kosovars, they were all, quote unquote, Yugoslav citizens when they traveled abroad. And I don't agree with the fact that you, there, is a, there could be a scholar today, a professor, or I don't know, a highly educated journalist who would speculate <coughs> the nationality of someone with the citizenship of someone. There are two different aspects, and this is not the crux of the problem here. Practically, the crux of the matter seems to be something else, which through your lecture comes, although it only comes out, although it's only 40 minutes that you've been talking. A couple of points. Uh, probably in this hall, I'm the only person to have met Mother Teresa two times. And uh, I have served as her interpreter when she first visited Albania. Mm -hmm. If you'd come to my office, you'd see her picture with me talking with her before Ramiz Ali would come out to meet her. And I have that picture with the autograph that was sent by her when she left. When she visited in 1989, I was an employee of foreign office. Uh, I had to interpret for the president and one of the colleagues in the foreign ministry, the formal interpreter of the foreign ministry, who was a lady called Natasha Aznedari. She would stay with Mount Reza 24 hours those few days. Mm -hmm. There has been efforts for her to visit Albania from 1986 after the death of Emir Hoxha. She's been writing, not herself, but on her behalf. The personal assistant was a Canadian lady. Probably you've met her. No, I haven't met her, but I'm aware of the... the so I've met the lady, I've talked to the lady, I've met her before Mother Teresa visited Albania. 
And there were two points in all the letters that they were writing to the Albanian authorities of that time. The first point was that given the level of economic development in the country uh, following almost a total collapse of the financial system under communism and for those who lived in Albania in 1986-87 you were you been in Cairo but I was in Tirana the shelves were totally empty there was practically nothing so the first point was she wanted to open the house of charity which we all know and the second was she wanted to visit her place where the mother was buried she arrived at the airport in Rinas I was there and she was taken together with her private assistant straight to the cemetery to lay a wreath on her mother's grave I used to work also with her sister and probably you know her sister worked for Radio Tirana yes. she was a, an announcer in Serbo-Croatian there were a few who would speak literary uh, Serbo-Croatian and she practically grew up after the birth or after the death of her father and the family moved from Skopje to Tirana so all these are linked together into a philosophy the way I see it that the communist regime in Tirana uh, had at the, at the foundation of its relations with Italy the Albanian government at that period for all those who uh, have an age similar to mine uh, they recall that the newsreel of Rai at one o'clock or at eight o'clock in the evening were relayed by the Daiti station. The only interruption of the newsreel was when the Pope appeared. Because they saw it, it was a danger that was that the system perceived with the church. And they had an issue with the church. So uh, this linkage, what you said at the beginning, that she didn't want to talk about her family was because her family was in Albania and her sister to survive had to work for Radio Tirana which was a radio of a communist system. I used to work in Radio Tirana in those years. So I, I don't know how this all figures out in the, in the analysis that, that you have made. And uh, in addition to that, uh, um, let me finish uh, by how, how, how do you comment the fact that there are authors in India who have written not very sympathetically about Mother Teresa. Yes, well... And, I... uh, <coughs> but when she passed away, there were millions lining the streets. 90,000, sir. I didn't interrupt you. Could you please, uh, could you please show a little bit of respect towards those people? Or... I stopped the microphone. No, no, we, we, we can talk after this in terms of... We have, we have seen... We have seen on the TV everybody visit, uh, who, who went there to, to see what, what happened in the ceremony. Uh, it showed streets lined up with probably a million people. I don't know how many. That was according to, that was according to the media in the West through which right. we had all these pictures. There was also an official delegation from our country headed by President Maidani and a big delegation went there. And so that was all what was reported. How do you read... The fact that, again, some Indian authors are adamantly against and they want to play down negatively the yes. role of Mother Teresa there. And how do you relate what I said before? Yes, uh, two, two excellent points. I mean, let's stay with the, um, the issue of Mother Teresa wanted to visit Albania and the Albanian government did not issue her with a visa. According to my research, and I could be wrong, uh, Mother Teresa in the 60s 
was careful in approaching the Albanian embassy in Rome. And the reason why she was careful was that, and I could be wrong, the Albanian government did not receive, if you like, a direct request for a visa by Mother Teresa, but by powerful friends of Mother Teresa, and one of them was a former UN um, head of the United Nations. The reason why Mother Teresa had to be very careful has to be seen in the context of the three weakest links which I identify in my research, which are A. Mother Teresa was absolutely aware of how important she was as a brand in India. And Mother Teresa was not prepared in any way to put in jeopardy the relationship tensed already between the Orthodox Church and the Vatican. If Mother Teresa wasn't the kind of clever woman which I think she was, then she would have said that her father was allegedly poisoned by the Serbs. Can you imagine what this would have meant in terms of the Slav propaganda that here you have an Albanian nun who is, if you like, manufactured as a celebrity and she is serving, if you like, the Vatican in order to undermine further the relationship between the Orthodox Church and the Vatican. So she was absolutely clear about what she as a celebrity could and couldn't say. Of course, it was also the issue of uh, her sister in Tirana. However, I haven't found evidence that her sister was mistreated in Tirana. She was working for the Radio Tirana. She was a member of the Opera Society. And, um, and I don't think that her sister, her mother also was mistreated. The other issue, and this is rather controversial, is the behavior of her brother. Albanian scholars who have written about Lazar Boyajium, they are reticent in terms of what his activity was like in Albania. He had studied in Graz. He had studied in Italy. He was... Um, after he finished the military academy in Tirana, he was working for King Zogu. When Italy occupied Albania in 1939, Mother Teresa's brother went to Rome and he enlisted in Mussolini's army. I know for a fact that when the war ended, the Italian partisans wanted to kill him, but it was the Italian wife who saved him. Now, I also know that he was condemned to death in Albania. In other words, considering how active the Albanian embassy in Rome was in terms of getting information about the emigre, Albanian emigre, I'm absolutely sure that someone apparently, some say that she was a general, I don't know, and I don't think he was, but uh, I think there was a tendency in the Albanian media to prop up, uh, the, if you like, to elevate the standard of uh, Mother Teresa's family. So in other words, Mother Teresa was not keen to apply for a visa because not that she didn't want to endanger her sister and her mother, but because she wanted to keep quiet about her um, her, her father, her brother. And I know for a fact that when Mother Teresa's sister was interviewed in the Ministry of Culture for a post during the invasion of, Italy, of, of Albania by Italy, half of the personnel in the Ministry of Culture were Albanians, the others were Italians. In her file, they had written that she comes from a very strong nationalistic patriotic stock, which means that in Albania they knew that Mother Teresa came from a patriotic background. 
I have found evidence, but not very strong evidence, that Lazar Boyagio knew Enver Hoxha personally when they were built in Austria. Lazar Boyagio claims, and I haven't found evidence to corroborate it, that apparently it was during that time that Enver Hoxha was taken to Moscow. I'm talking about uh, before the First World War, when uh, Hoxha was studying in the West. And my argument would be that, considering how spiteful Enver Hoxha could be with some of his colleagues that he has studied in the West, I'm quite sure that he wouldn't have minded, if you like, sacrificing anyone who would spread rumors about, if you like, his relations with the Soviets. So Mother Teresa was caught, I, I, I agree, this kind of network of interests and contradictions, and she had to play it very carefully. Yes. Uh, she didn't approve very much of her brother, but her brother, I wouldn't say that her brother was, if you like, a traitor. No, I think he was a pragmatist. He would serve anyone who would pay him. Because, and one of the reasons why I'm saying this is because after the Second World War, he went to the Americans and he said, hello, can you employ me as a driver? And someone, if you like, if, if, if anyone has been seriously implicated with Mussolini's army, I mean, he would have run for his life. He didn't. So in that sense, that's why Mother Reza never took him seriously. Alfred. Right. No. Uh, I would uh, I would rather take issue politely with that. Why? Now, no. Let me, let me. Uh, please, if um, these debates about numbers and um, the knowledge, <coughs> we can have them after after the talk. No, um, that's all right. But this, this is going to be too long, I think. That's no. all. Anyway, I will. I will very briefly answer. When I was in Calcutta, one of the purposes was to establish contacts with. Um, Indians who were not Catholics or Christians, Indians who were, if you like, uh, uh, belonging to Hinduism or whatever religion, or Indians who were not, if you like, affiliated to any kind of religion. And I established this context, thanks to you, and I was surprised at the kind of sincerity and the integrity... No, I wasn't going to say that. I was surprised, if you like, by the integrity with which Indian intellectuals spoke to me in confidence what exactly they thought about my Teresa. However, I am from Albania, and there isn't a day in this country when I'm not upset with the way that the Albanians and Albanians are portrayed in the British media. I'm not happy with it. I'm not endorsing that, you know. I'm not saying that all Albanians behave in the West. However... I do take issue with the kind of selective information that finds its way on the pages of the British papers. Having said that, I understand where you come from. Yes, British papers. Yeah. And British international papers, as you know, Albania, unfortunately, does not have, if you like, that kind of image that it deserves to, to have in the West. 
And coming from a small country myself, or coming from a country which I think is not presented objectively, because Albania has made quite long strides, if you like, and there is quite a lot that Albanians have to be proud in the last uh, um, 18 years or so. And I am frustrated because there is this kind of selective information. So I do take your point when you say that as someone who was born in Calcutta, you, if I read your book correctly, you hold Mother Teresa responsible for the kind of image that in the West we have on Calcutta. Yes. However, to go to the point that His Excellency made about why some Indian scholars take issue with Mother Teresa is because the way how I see it, there is a kind of censorship going on in India also about Mother Teresa. But I have absolutely no doubt that there are Indians who love Mother Teresa. And the reason why they love Mother Teresa is because in India, if you are a foreigner and you are seen to be a selfish person, then Mother Teresa was respected because she was, if you like, appreciated for the kind of sacrifice that she, she, she made. However, we have not also, we have to consider the kind of relationship that she established with the communist government in, 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 in Bengal. She was very clever, no, it's not complicated, she was a very clever woman. So, in a sense, she knew how to sail, if you like, even to have partners, if you like, and the Catholics and the communists don't get on very well together. She was very careful, if you like, in the way how she constructed that kind of relationship with the purpose of helping the poor of Calcutta. Right. Anyway, but I mean, to, to, to wrap this up, I know that there are, and, and I'm delighted that now Indians, if you like, are expressing their views because that's where we have a healthy debate about Mother Teresa. What's the point of all applauding Mother Teresa? Thank you. Next. Sorry. Uh, you mentioned the, you made a link between Mother Teresa's first visit to Albania and laying a wreath at Andrew Hodges' grave. I personally don't recall it. I, I have no reason to doubt what you are saying at all. And I don't recall it. No, I found this evidence in the, in the books written by Westerners. So you have to be very careful about it. I don't recall it. But I can find in the archives of the Foreign Ministry the program of her visit in Tirana for the first two days. I don't recall it. Even if it is, uh, because, you know, it, sometimes you mention these things, they, they, uh, it, it, it looks like you, you have a correlation between uh, a religious person and a communist system. But you know that before the 90s, whoever foreigner would visit Albania, and I was part of the establishment, I know it, uh, it was kind of a protocol that in order to get a visa and come here, you have to go there. Even though the person himself might not have wished to, or might not have gone, a, a bouquet of flowers was laid on the grave of Henry Roger in his name, <coughs> which was used. Absolutely. So, it's a very tricky issue to use or not to use. So, I want to have your comment about it first and second. <coughs> yes. Uh, uh, the question of the brother and the sister. You know that her sister was the closest friend of Maria Kraya. Yes, I know that. And they lived in the same building, in the same. Uh, same floor, I think that two flats, either one above the other or one in front of the other. That's why she became attached to the opera, to the um, opera society. Yep. There were very few 
in communist times, very few men, because this opera society, in fact, didn't operate as an NGO. It did not. That was a link with the opera. <coughs> uh, close relationship, eventually. Of course, yeah. Uh, also, some family relations ties with the crimes. Yes. Um, and, the, um, and the brother issue, although he was in the Muslim, probably Muslim, as you have made the research, um, I don't think... I have not made any research, but I don't think that it had played probably a major role in Mother Teresa's decision. Because it was normal when Albania had an Anschluss with Italy. During Mussolini's time, we worked together, we were one state. The Kingdom of Italy, Albania, and Abyssinia. Eritrea today. It was one state, with one government, with one currency. Uh, so, um, it, it, it's, it's like... It's like Commenting today the good points or the bad points of Kurt Waldheim, who was for two terms president of Austria, two terms elected secretary general of the United Nations, and a photograph taken somewhere in, with the SSR when it was an Anschluss between Austria and Germany. So it was a must to be in the army, whether you served in the background of the army, in the sport, or whatever. No, combatant of the army. So it was, it's a very tricky issue. Uh, well, the information that I have uh, used to do my research, in spite of the, if you like, the, in addition to the interviews I've had, I have used not necessarily any kind of publication and not any hagiographer, although I do respect their views. I have uh, um, dealt with biographers who are very serious, um, very impartial. Some of them do not necessarily share Mother Teresa's religion. Uh, that Mother Teresa uh, was if you like, issued with the Albanian visa, I think Nejmiya Hoxha at that time had quite a lot to do because Nejmiya Hoxha behind the scene was a very powerful person. And I've read a book of an Italian journalist uh, who visited uh, Nejmiya Hoxha in the prison, and she specifically makes, if you like, mention of what I said about Madhuriza going to Enver uh, uh, Hoxha's grave. And I think that someone like Madhuriza, who always preached forgiveness, someone like her, who had, if you like, that kind of moral integrity, that kind of spiritual richness to forgive the Serbs if they indeed assassinated her father and never mentioned in public something about that. I think that Mother Teresa's uh, act of going to Enver Hoxha's grave is the greatest act of patriotism that she not, this time did for Albania. At that time, with Albania was almost a couple of years away from the brink of civil war. So it is in that sense, that's why I say that she was a very sophisticated and, if you like, uh, a woman with far-sightedness, which not necessarily everyone has. So in this case, the information comes from um, an off-record, of the record, I will talk to you uh, later about a couple of colleagues in the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs that I have interviewed in confidence uh, uh, who had something to do with arranging, if you like, uh, her visit, uh, her visa from uh, um, and intervened uh, to Ramiz Ali at that time. With regards to uh, Mother Teresa's... Right. Yeah, um, I'm talking about um, a good friend of mine who at that time was in diplomatic service outside Albania. And I haven't mentioned that person in the book because that was the agreement. As with regards to, uh, uh, if I go to the issue of uh, Mother Teresa's brother, uh, 
Mother Teresa's brother left Albania almost the day when Albania was occupied. And it is important to notice that his colleagues fought in Duras and there was resistance against the occupation. So in that sense, for whatever reasons, I know that he left Albania. I also know for a fact that there were many Albanians who had studied in Italy before the war and they were part of the Italian uh, intelligence service. And it could be that he was recruited by the Italians, and there is nothing wrong with that in that sense. However, what I haven't found any evidence is that he was, if you like, implicated in war crimes. And that's why I said that he was a pragmatist. He would serve anyone who would pay him. Sorry, uh, can you just remind me when Ramizalia came to power? Is it after Hoja? Uh, yes, and he was, was handpicked. I mean, when Hoja died in, was it 1984? 85. Well, I'm old, yes. Oh. Yes, thank you. Uh, 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 Petri uh, Florence. Uh, Anthony Robbins, in his inspiration book, said, uh, Mother Teresa uh, left his house and his home, and his, uh, his father which was known as uh, Raoul Lod, and then she went to India because she believed in what she conceived. And the reason why she went to India was because that part of the world that time was suffering a little bit about love, and she went there to show people of the world that this is the best place to give love to children. And uh, another writer wrote that Mother Teresa was so much inspired by Constantine. What was the connection between Constantine and Mother Teresa as well? Those two questions. Constantine? Yes, Constantine. The emperor, Constantine. The emperor. Oh, I see. The empire who built all the churches of Europe. Uh, well, the issue of the emperor, if you are talking about the emperor who, by some Albanians, is considered to be of Illyrian origin, I'm afraid that's news to me. However, there is no doubt that Mother Teresa went to India because she saw herself as a missionary of love. But the argument that I'm making is that in terms of the sociology of religion and psychoanalysis, it is worthwhile considering the motives from a point of personal perspective. If there was anything in her life which in a sense motivated her to go to India, this doesn't mean that we are undermining, if you like, her like devotion to the poor and why she went there. But I think it's more complicated than that, that there you have, you like, a young lady from Skopje, I want to go to India because I want to, uh, to show to people there that, you know, we should love each other and so on and so forth. Because in a sense, when Maltese went to India, there is a long tradition of charitable work which went on in India before and during Maltese, and not everyone knows about these things. Mother Teresa had her own agenda, which was, of course, to serve the poor of India, but I'm emphasizing that kind of personal, if you like, uh, interest that she had in going to India. This doesn't mean that I have the answer. All I'm saying is that she was such a complicated person, and I'm in a modest way trying to contribute a bit to Mother Teresa, who is, and I'm sure everyone would agree here, one of the most iconic figures of the 20th century. And in a modest way, I'm trying to introduce Mother Teresa to academic discourse rather than simplify her issues 
advise and encourage academics to talk about her because she is a fascinating case study for, in many aspects, in terms of post-colonialism, in terms of sociology of religion, in terms of feminism, if you like, in terms of fame capital, Mother Teresa is quite an interesting study. No, I, I would argue that perhaps Mother Teresa, uh, as His Excellency is saying, considering how powerful Najmiya uh, Hoja was in the wake of the demise death of her, her, her husband, it could have been one of the conditions that if you would allow Mother Teresa to come here. I know, but Mother, look, Mother Teresa but was that not. Wasn't no, I know Mother Teresa was. She, uh, well, I mean, if you are a public figure, Absolutely. then everything that you say, I mean, is recorded and but is, you know. Yes, what I'm going to say is that she did not make a single comment That was a gestural thing. No, I'm afraid I would disagree with you because, according to Nijmiya Hoja, and the book has been written by an Italian who was by no means a friend of the uh, Hoja regime, Nijmiya Hoja. Uh, wrote very, very highly about Mother Teresa, and according to her, Mother Teresa even paid a compliment to what the communists had achieved, which again, it shows what, like what? That Nijmiya uh, Hoja said that according to Mother Teresa, uh, no, according to Nijmiya Hoja, Mother Teresa is a great patriot. Now, I, would, I don't want to go into the political discourse, if you like, and the kind of diplomatic nuances of these exchanges, because she was the first lady, but... I know, but didn't Mother Teresa also speak very highly about a couple of American presidents then? Some people who take... Not, not, not all of them. Anyway, the, the point that I'm no, the point that I'm making is that Mother Teresa was not a world leader. Mother Teresa was a missionary who was catapulted to the world stage, and as a result of the media, she. Okay, uh, just a second. I, I have to I have to ask if there are any questions from anybody else. We'll continue the uh, monopolized discussion. Yes, yes, please. Gentlemen there. Thank you. Um, you've explained very well how she got from her childhood this desire to go to India and also that at the same time there were very few Albanian young women who took the veil who left the region. So what I would like to know is how was it, why was it that she ends up in Ireland? That she entered? She ends up in Ireland. How does she oh, get? I see. Oh, well. <coughs> uh, Mother Teresa wrote the application to join the Loretta Order or to go to India as a result. Were you here from the very beginning of the talk? No. Um, she knew about the missionaries in India because of the literature in Serbo-Croat that existed and circulated in the Balkan at that time. And she wrote, if you like, to, she did some research in terms of who 
exactly is serving, if you like, Jesus in India. So she was informed in terms of uh, the orders that uh, were operating in India. And when she learned that there was this order of Loretta in India, and she knew that the HQ were in Dublin, she wrote to the mother superior in Dublin, and she was asked to go for, I think, up to six weeks in terms of training. That's how she went there. And uh, a good friend of mine who is from Ireland, a colleague, he says that because Mother Teresa spent six weeks in Ireland, she is Irish. Um, well, there you are. So this is the reason why Mother Teresa went to, to, to Ireland initially and from there to Calcutta. Thank you. Anyone Any else? Any questions? Yes. Yes. The distinguished poet Martin Salmay wrote yes. to Mother Teresa, and if there is another correspondence which might shed light why she uh, attached herself to Christianity and to serving the poor. I mean, you mentioned the 18 years as, let's say, blank side of her life. Is there any divine inspiration to do with poetry, like we have in the case of Las Gushparadetsi, who was inspired to learn Sankrist in order to read and translate in Albanian the Veda, and subsequently write, wrote about it being highly inspired from Veda and Indian language. So, uh, in short, <coughs> if you manage to come across anything well, new which might shed light. No, um, I haven't come across any literature which in a sense throws light on why exactly Maltreza chose India, but I would say considering that Christianity in India has by that time rather had 19 years, uh, 19 centuries of tradition, I suppose Maltreza perhaps saw India more or less as the kind of native country in the sense that both Albania or the Balkans and India have quite a long tradition in terms of their introduction to Christianity. So in a sense, probably in the way how she understood Christianity, she felt that by going there, and I have in mind St. Thomas of course, by going there, she was going home. As far as Mother Teresa was concerned, anyone who had spread the word of Jesus Christ across the globe, she had the right to be there because she felt responsible to, if you like, carry out uh, the message of Jesus Christ. Um, a good friend of mine, a poet, Visarjiti, told me in Rome recently that when we Albanians talk about Mother Teresa, we talk about ourselves. If we understand, if you like, the reasons why Mother Teresa went to India, then we perhaps will understand why we Albanians are fascinated with Mother Teresa. In a, in, in a Freudian sense, perhaps Mother Teresa is that kind of a person which allows us Albanians to look deep into our souls and see what exactly can we do, if you like, in order, in order to elevate ourselves to that kind of level of love and understanding and sophistication that Mother Teresa had. So it, in that sense, rather than, if you like, claim Mother Teresa as an Albanian, we have to understand what exactly made Mother Teresa such a great and complicated person. Another question? Yes, of course. 
uh, we are talking about very prominent family, Boyajiu, like we have Chiriyas yes. in Manastir. And you mentioned uh, that uh, the crucial point was that her father was killed at the age of nine. Yes. I'm not trying to deny her greatness as a person, as a celebrity, but how sure we can be, how sure can we be that she forgive those who killed her father? While I would say that this was a crucial moment which made her to attach herself to serving the poor and to Christianity. I, I agree with you that she never talked about, she was very diplomatic. And although she perhaps was not, was not highly educated as she would have wished to, do, to, to be, there is intelligence. That's an excellent point. I asked in Pristina a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Luzgerji, who is the best expert in um, when it comes to Mother Teresa's uh, life in Skopje. And again, with him I had the understanding that I will ask him very sensitive questions, and he had the integrity of saying that I'm going to answer every single question you have. And he did, and one of the questions was, how many times did you see Mother Teresa? Did she ever talk about her father. And he said that he has met Mother Teresa up to 50 times. The interview took place in his house in Kosovo. And he has asked her, he had asked her at some point, do you remember Nicole, uh, her father? And her answer was, like it was yesterday. And according to Lurgerio, who is a prominent scholar as well as, as a priest, that was a kind of an attachment that Mother Teresa never forgot. I wish I were a religious person. I mean, I've had the privilege to meet quite a lot of religious persons in my life, especially in the last 10 years. And they seem to have that kind of richness, which I'm afraid, as a secular person, although to some extent I, 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 I do believe in the existence of a power, call it God or whatever, it's very difficult for someone like me to conduct research in a field that I don't have a training because I'm not a theologian. And I've tried to bring together dis different disciplines in order to maintain that kind of detachment that I mentioned a bit earlier. And if I quote Mother Teresa, faith, either you have it or you don't. And I'm afraid you can't quantify it. And who am I, if you like, to quantify what faith is? What I'm absolutely sure is that in spite of the, you know, the dark night of the soul that she had, Mother Teresa always, always seemed against all odds, tried to convince herself that even if she didn't have faith, we should have faith. That is something which I find tremendous, and only someone with that kind of spiritual richness can do. I know. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, well, right on time. Uh, please join me in um, applauding Dr. Albion's presentation today. Thank you. And thank you very much for taking the time this Friday evening.